Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hey now, welcome to the Daily Jungle. The Golden State Warriors are NBA champions. Steph and KD took LeBron's best shot, and they put the Cavs down in five to take the trilogy. Chris Mannix came in, he broke it all down, and gave us his take on the Mayweather-McGregor fight that may actually be coming in August. Plus, Red's utility man, Scooter Jeanette, also came in after he went legend. Four home runs in one night and the NL Player of the Week. He broke that down for us. And last, but certainly not least, we had Warriors owner Peter Goober. The morning after his team won the Larry O. Alvi, let's not waste time with it. Just do what you do. Golden State 129. Cleveland 120, Golden State 4, Cleveland 1, Golden State 16, everybody else won, and the Warriors are champs once again. They're going to run the clock off. The road to redemption has brought the Warriors back home. The Golden State Warriors are the 2017 NBA champions. Final score, Golden State 129, Cleveland 120. Let's end the discussion right now. The Golden State Warriors have a seat at the table with the best teams of all time. He's right about that. Maybe not perfect, maybe not the best team of all time, but they are the champs. Warriors Radio, thank you for that. In other words, redemption. The playoffs may have sucked, but that game did not. In fact, that was everything you hoped it would be. Three of the greatest players to ever play on the court at the same time. In fact, don't stop there. There were definitely three, but probably six or seven future Hall of Famers on the court, and all in their prime. A couple of heavyweights, trading haymakers. That had everything. Dunks, ridiculous shots, LeBron going off, KD dropping 39, Kyrie going off, Steph putting up 34, J.R. Smith going off, a mini scuffle and multiple tees. David West, another rebound, and he's tied up by Irving. It's going to be a jump ball. No, a technical foul on West. And now West chest-to-chest with Tristan Thompson. And now everybody tangled up. Security people up off both benches. We're going to get at least one technical. David West may get ejected here. Mike Brown comes in to wrestle away. Cleveland came out strong. Yeah, Twitter didn't have very much fun with that, did they, last night? Cleveland comes out strong. Golden State battles back. Cleveland counters. Then as halftime approached... And the Warriors started to pull away. And it looked like they would end this thing early. J.R. Smith, of all guys, hits the Cavaliers with the paddles. One clutch, three after another. And when they needed him most, J.R. Smith was J.R. Swish. And he was so right. Guy was amazing last night. Every time it looked like Golden State had them buried, the Cavs would claw their way back out of their graves. I mean, these guys would not die. LeBron, Kyrie, love battling on the boards. Hell, Tristan Thompson showed up and balled out, and it still was not enough because the Warriors are just too good. There are too many weapons for anybody, including the Cavaliers, to match up with. KD, 39-7-5. Steph, 34-6-10. Clay with some big threes. Even Patrick McCaw with a couple of clutch moments. However, the guy with the wooden stake... And the garlic cloves was none other than Andre Tyler Iguodala. Hell yes, I'm going government on Iggy because he showed up huge. Duran looks inside, looks for a cutter. Clay Thompson shows, now goes away. Cross court to Andre. He's open, rainbow three, and Andre hit another one. 
Iguodala with his second triple. He's got 16, and the Warriors push the lead back up to eight. Best game he's played in the series. No doubt. 38 minutes, 20 points, three boards, three assists, and one great defensive stand after another. That was the 2015 NBA Finals MVP, Iguodala, showing up when his team had to have it most. An incredible performance, and he, honestly, almost as much as anybody, was the difference last night. He had to stop on Kyrie that turned into that monster coast-to-coast dunk that nearly took the roof off Oracle. Then he chased that with a basket, a dunk, and one alley-oop after another. You name it, he did it. He impacted that game at both ends. He brought the fans to their feet one time after another, and then he jumped up on the scorer's table when it was all over to celebrate. And then afterwards, Iguodala said, quote, I've been so stressed the last three or four weeks. When it's time for me to be a little selfish and show what I can do, well, it shows there's something powerful up there, end quote. Iggy brought the power last night. Now, I said yesterday that that series would end last night, and there was no way they were going back to Cleveland, and Iguodala made sure of that. I said before the series, the Warriors would win in five, and they made sure of that. And that makes two rings in three years. And unless there's some other crazy cap spike that magically appears out of nowhere, there is no reason to believe that this is going to change anytime soon. No reason to believe that anybody's going to run these guys down anytime in the near future. Get used to it. That's not changing. They've ripped two, and there's no reason to believe that this crew can't win. Not two, not three, not four. They're going to keep going. And of course, I've said the best for last, Kevin Durant. As for Kevin Durant, this is why he did what he did, and this is why it was the right thing. Of course it was the right thing. He's the best player on the best team in the world. He won a title. He was the finals MVP. He crushed it. Can we be really clear about this? He has nothing to apologize for, and neither do the Warriors for signing him. And don't come in here trying to hang some asterisk on it or hit it with a yeah, but. They won it. They deserved it. Period. No ands, ifs, or buts. No asterisks. I mean, just assembling a roster of crazy talent does not guarantee you anything. They had the best roster last year. They won 73 games last year. They had a 3-1 lead in the finals last year, and they still lost. So just adding Kevin Durant did not guarantee that ring. And Durant did not just gravy train somebody else who was going to do the work for him so he could get that ring. He led them to it. He won the MVP. This was not a dude looking for the path of least resistance. This was not a dude looking to be option number three and jump on somebody else's back to get that ring. They didn't get him there. He got them there. That was not the easy way out. Had he and they not won at all, Durant would be getting crucified this morning for that decision. Look, there was no risk in staying at OKC. He was already a legend there. It wasn't his fault that they didn't win a ring right there. It wasn't his fault that James Harden was traded. And it wasn't his fault that Russ Westbrook wouldn't move the ball enough. Just as it wouldn't have been his fault if they didn't win at all. So the risk was in leaving The risk was in joining the Warriors and not winning at all. Look, I don't think any less of this guy for bouncing from OKC and going to a better team. Who doesn't jump when they have a chance to advance their career and improve their life? He had that shot, so he took it, just like every last one of you would. And if you tell me otherwise, and you tell me you wouldn't do the same thing, 
To quote Draymond Green, you're just not one of the sharpest people around. Don't seem to be the sharpest people around. So Doesn't try to improve their life and their career when given that shot. We are joined by Peter Goober. Peter, my friend, it is good to have you back on the show. Congratulations and good morning. How are you, Peter? Thanks, Jim. How are you, too? Everything good? Yeah, Peter, everything's great. How about you? How are you feeling this morning? I'm feeling great. A little hoarse from the event yesterday, but uh, it's a good horse. That the event, you mean, you mean that world championship. Let me, let's talk about that event. It's been a few hours since the clock hit triple zero. The confetti fell, Peter. You win the 2017 NBA championship. So when you think back on last night, what are some of the moments and emotions that will jump out, to, jump out the most for you? I think the, the, the feeling of recognizing that you're playing against a formidable, an absolutely formidable team with an unbelievable world-class, super world-class athlete, LeBron, who just won't let them lose. I mean, he just keeps coming at you. And Kyrie Irving, his wingman, who is essentially unbelievable to watch, really phenomenal, and recognizing that you have to be playing at your very best if you want to you beat them. So it was really, to me, um, you know, always a, a mystery, you know, that just, just when you think it's you're going to make escape velocity, they're back in the hunt again. So you have to be you have to be uh, relentless against that kind of a foe, an adversary. Clones, can I talk to you for one moment about Stamps.com? Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I can mail any letter, any package, using just my computer and printer, and the mailman picks it right up. I can avoid the hassle of the post office and mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages, domestic or international. Stamps.com makes it so easy. They'll send you a digital scale, automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com. We will help you decide the very best class of mail based on your needs. There is no need to lease an expensive postage meter. Don't do that. I use Stamps.com because I'm never going to the post office again, ever. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the very top of the homepage. Type in Rome. Stamps.com. Enter Rome. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office ever again. Stamps.com. Now, back to our daily jungle. Peter Guber joining us. You know, Peter, this is essentially what you do. You're a storyteller. You're a film producer. So you know better than anybody that overcoming obstacles and dealing with pain is a part of life and a part of the journey. Does the pain of losing last year make winning this year feel even better? You know, I, I, I'm going to answer that question with something that is a little bit different. Uh, last year, when when we were ahead three to one, I turned to Bob Myers, the president of basketball operations, when I was having a, a quick cup of coffee with him at a at the break in the, in the game, and I said to him, "We're not going to get KD." He said, "What do you mean? Said, if we win, we're not going to get him. We're just not." And then at the end of the half, the first in that seventh game. Um, when I, that day, when, when I said we were at six points, I said, still not going to get him. And then we lost. And I walked back in the room and, he, and, I, and he, I, I was smiling. He said, what are you smiling about? He says, we're going to get him. I said, what do you mean? He said, we're going to get him. He has a mission now. And so the idea is sometimes losing makes the next win possible. Sometimes you make adjustments in your team that make uh, other kinds of opportunities possible. So I think that we went seven games, lost to a tremendous team, played our hearts out, 
but now we have uh, we constituted the team somewhat, quite quite a bit, and uh, we won the championship. It's... So it was it was a, it was a bittersweet loss and a bittersweet victory. So sometimes when you lose, you win on some level. It's a really interesting question, a really interesting response. So Peter, when did you first get it in your head that you maybe should pursue? Kevin Durant, and that you might get him. When did that first come into your head? Well, you know, you, you have to have, you only have to have two eyes and a nose <clears throat> to know who's the, some of the best, very best talents in, in, you know, in the market, in the, in the plans. You knew he was considering uh, moving on, <clears throat> so you wanted to be part of that derby. But really what you're doing is you're creating <clears throat> a compelling offering uh, to somebody like that. So I think it's natural to always be looking at what your opportunities are, whether you're at the bottom of the pile or the top of your pile. And so I think you're constantly recognizing the change as an inevitable partner on your journey. So you're looking to make it and to protect it and to change your view about it. And so you have to have that attitude if you want a winning aptitude. Peter Guber joining us, the owner of the Golden State Warriors. You know, Peter, it would be easy to say that when Kevin Durant signed last summer, that winning the title the way you did was always going to be that way, but there are plenty of situations where you can combine great ingredients, but maybe that cake does not come out the way you'd expect. So how did you go about making sure that this would be a good fit and the right fit? Well, I think the first thing is um, Bob Myers and Steve Kerr and Joe Lacob, we all felt that our culture was solid. Uh, resilient, uh, could accommodate changes, uh, could could uh, uh, create an atmosphere that was compelling, and that you looked at the uh, personality and the attitude of the players, and they were uh, they were all excited for him. In fact, all went to see him, and that you also look at his nature and his attitude. He's a total professional, and uh, wanted to be in a team where it was fun to play. If there was anything about the Warriors that was true, it was fun to play. Uh, we had a unique culture, a very unique culture, where the ball moved fluidly, flawlessly, you know, seamlessly amongst all the players, and it wasn't uh, a my turn, your turn thing. It was, it was always our turn. So I think that was a compelling component for Kevin, in my opinion. Peter Guber joining us, soldiering through this one after a long night. Peter, I'm glad you mentioned culture before I let you go, because it seems like the organization has such a clear and well-defined culture, but that was not always the case. How did you go about creating and developing that culture? Well, I think it starts uh, with the imperative of a, uh, of a group. It, it was that it was inclusive. It was designed to win, but win elegantly. Uh, and that doesn't mean fancily. It means elegantly. Meaning, use it, make it, make it an emotion, not a commotion. In in the in the whole group together, that they bought, they led by Bob Myers and Steve Kerr. They bought into the idea that it wasn't a me team; it was a we team. And I think you know the leaders of those teams, like like Curry and Draymond, they they provided the proof of process to anybody who was coming in that you had to. You had to, you know, be willing to recognize you were a component in the, in the, in the team and that, that uh, we felt that the whole organization uh, was built that way, not being risk-averse, you know, looking at opportunities, not just the problems, and designing, designing ourselves around the idea that success uh, is not inevitable and has to be worked at every day by everyone 
in their own unique ways, but orchestrated together by Coach Kerr and leaders of the team. Peter Guru, my guest. Peter, before I go, let you go, a couple of really quick thoughts. You mentioned Steve Kerr there a couple of times. So what kind of thoughts did you have as you watched Steve deal with the kind of pain that he's dealt with and battled through it as he was the head coach of the team and came back to lead this team to the win? Yeah, you know, it, 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 was, it, was, you know, it wasn't just perspirational. It was inspirational. It was a sense of, it was a sense of his, his desire and his focus and never wavered, uh, his ability to put his own personal pain to the left or the right to focus on the joy and pain of the team was self-evident. And I think the idea is he would never endanger the team if he wasn't capable of bringing uh, his best interests and best efforts in it. So you knew that. So you were guided by him. And he, <clears throat> he worked through it, and he provi- provided a sense of rigor and discipline that the team could see, so they had to live up to that kind of standard. Hmm. You know, there's going to be some decisions to be made in terms of personnel and the potential impact on the luxury tax. I won't get too deep into that when you're still celebrating right now. But bottom line, Peter, are you willing to pay what it takes to keep that team together? You know, I think what we do is we we have an attitude of gratitude for us now about getting where we are. Now, I don't think we can stay where we are. I don't think we can keep where we are. I don't think we can do where we are. We have to do what tomorrow's needs are. Other teams are getting better. We have to determine how we can get better. And Joe and uh, Steve and Bob and the whole group has to be willing to be a challenger to our own incumbency. If, we're, if, if we just act as the incumbent, we're going to be eaten. We always have to challenge our own incumbency. And that means players and schemes and designs and, and, and the uh, conditioning, all those things always going to be re- reevaluated as does the whole culture in the organization, how we present it to our fans, how we build our new venue. You know, it's a constant and never-ending change. Mm. Peter Cooper is the CEO of Mandalay. He's the owner of the Warriors, the Dodgers, the LA Football Club, the producer of films like Rain Man and Batman. He is a New York Times bestselling author, Tell to Win. And Peter, we did this two years ago after your first win, so it's something of a tradition. I know you soldiered through that. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts, Peter. Congratulations, and great to get caught up with you. Thanks, Jim, and good luck to you. So if you're one of those guys lighting up cigars, dousing yourself in champagne, and planning parades, not because Golden State won, but because LeBron lost, because he's still stuck on three rings, if that's you, I would strongly suggest checking yourself hard. Because if what you saw over the past five games makes you think any less of LeBron, then you're not that sharp then you really don't know anything about basketball. In short, you're kind of a moron. If you saw what I saw, if you saw what the rest of us saw, and you think less of this guy, and you think that's a bad look for him. So don't come in here with that lame take that losing again in the finals dings his legacy. Because anybody who says that either does not understand basketball or did not watch the finals or both. Just like I'm not interested in hearing that maybe LeBron's not built for the moment. Or, this is a guy that runs away from pressure. Years ago, maybe. But not anymore. Not in a long, long time. You want proof? Just look at what happened to the Cavaliers every single time that guy took a seat on the bench. When he left the floor, his team fell apart over and over again. Yes, the Cavaliers lost. No, it's not in any way LeBron's fault. 
He averaged a triple-double for the finals. He's the first player in NBA history to do that. That's after he led last year's finals in points, rebounds, assists, blocks, and steals, and led his team back from a 3-1 deficit against a team that won 73 games. There's dominance, and then there's whatever the hell LeBron's doing. Because that is a totally different level. He guarded Kevin Durant. He was guarded by Kevin Durant and Andre Iguodala and Klay Thompson. He attacked the rack. He hit nearly 40% from three. If you're looking to crack him today, my question to you is, what else do you want this guy to do? What more can this guy do? What do you expect from him? There is no shame in losing to a Golden State team with Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Klay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, and everybody else. LeBron himself said it best. We left everything on the floor. It still was not enough. But of course it wasn't. The guy ran into a buzzsaw. A team that will go down in history as one of the greatest teams of all time. And the fact that Cleveland should have won game three, nearly won last night, shows how good the Cavs were. And how good LeBron still is. I'm not saying you have to like this guy. I'm not saying you have to cheer for him. I'm not saying you have to buy his jersey. I'm not saying that you've got to say that he's anything other than a bag, per se. But don't come in with lame reasons and say he's not great. Or that he's a choker. Or that he's not built from the moment. Or that he runs from the moment. Because the guy is great. In fact, I think he's still the best player in the world. And personally, I'm not sure I've ever seen him play any better. Right now, he's still at the height of his powers. If you can't appreciate him, that's on you, not him. And that's too bad because the guy's playing some of the best ball any of us have ever seen. But if you want to focus on, well, whatever the hell it is that you want to focus on, you go right ahead. But it's, it's a whack take. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. To say that this guy's anything other than great, an all-time great, still on top of his game, it's just wrong. It's a whack take. It's a bad take. It's factually incorrect. And as he points out, what more could he do? He left everything out there. I have no reason to put my head down. I have no reason to look back at what I could have done or what I shouldn't have done or what, what I could have done better for the team. I left everything I had out on the floor every single game for five, five games in his finals. And, um, you know, you come up short. What more could the guy do? What more could Kyrie do? Kyrie just gassed out. And you knew that was going to happen. I mean, you expect so much from those two guys. Kyrie last night kind of dinged his knee earlier in the game. He mentioned that his back tightened up. And then he went 0-4 the fourth quarter. They gassed out. They had nothing left. That's what happens when you go up against a team that's as deep and as good as Golden State. In terms of them adding KD, I mean, what's LeBron going to say? Miami added him and Chris Bosh. LeBron knows how that game is played. He knows how the system is set up. And he also knows that they better get back to work if they're going to get back to a championship. But he had no problem with KD doing what he did. They assembled a great team. You know, we was able to get them last year. And they went out and got, you know, one of the best players that this league has ever seen. You know, so, you know, they did a good job of a great job. You know, their front office and, and their players by doing that recruiting, the things that they did in the summertime. And obviously they paid dividends. Right. And tip your hat to them, too, because all those guys made sacrifices and allowances in bringing Kevin Durant in. That's not as easy as it looks. So where does that leave Cleveland? Where does that leave the rest of the NBA? I mean, Golden State is built to win now and next year and the year after. That's not going to change. We're talking about dynasty. They've won two of the last three years. These guys are in their prime. They're set up beautifully. So what does the rest of the league have to do? 
LeBron knows that they can't run that back and expect to have a different result. They've got to get back to work, and so does everybody else. I'm not the GM of the team, and I'm not yes, in the front office, and, but I know our front office is going to continue to, to try to put our ball club, put our franchise in position where we compete for a championship year in and year out. And, and like I said, you know, um, teams and franchises are going to be trying to figure out ways that they can put personnel together, the right group of guys together to be able to hopefully compete against this team. I think David Griffin did a nice job with that team. Did a nice job of getting some pieces and putting them together and trying to make a run at it. But the Warriors had the ultimate piece that they were able to get. That story Lee Jenkins had in SI was incredible about how Draymond was on his phone right after the Game 7 loss last year to Durant saying, you got to be a part of this. And the way Lee Jenkins laid that out was to say that Draymond Green said, we don't want to be great just so we can come back and beat these guys. We want to be great. We want to be dominant, and we want to be dominant for a long time. So I love how Draymond put it all together. Allegedly, Chris Mannix all over the NBA Finals and a lot more. He joins us once again. Chris, good to have you back. How you feeling, man? I'm good, Jim. How you doing? How is the quality of your life at the end of the NBA Finals? Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, at the end of these these trips, you're you're physically at your pretty much worst. It's like I think it's like after the the fourth, you know, press room hot dog followed by the thirteenth Red Bull to keep you up. So I'm looking forward to uh trying desperately to get back in some kind of shape. I hear you. Chris Mannix joining us. All right, so when you look back on the twenty seventeen finals, years from now, what do you think you're going to remember the most? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that jumps to mind is um, the lack of competition, not just in the finals throughout the playoffs. I think that's always going to be a stain on this. But as I'm watching the game last night, um, I, I felt you, you feel good for Kevin Durant in that moment. And that's sort of one of the biggest takeaways I had from these last three or four games. Kevin Durant is is forever going to be labeled by some people as just a ring chaser, a guy that latched on to a great team to try to win a championship because he you know, couldn't do it on his own, some people would say. But I watched these, this series, Jim, and there's no way that Golden State wins this series without Kevin Durant. Cleveland is a truly great team with two unbelievable offensive players. They needed every single point, every single possession from Kevin Durant to win this series. So he may have, have joined a, a super team, but that super team needed him more than he needed them in this series. Chris Mannix, a senior writer for Yahoo Sports and the Vertical. It's funny you say that, Chris. I was going to ask you that next. As good as Golden State was without Kevin Durant, would they win without him right now? And you said no. You answered that question. So, you know, people will call him a ring chaser. I mean, aren't they all ring chasers? Isn't the ring the thing? Isn't that why you're in it? So now that he has his ring, what does the title mean for Kevin Durant? Well, I think, you know, it'll it'll still – it maybe won't be as meaningful as the title he would have won had he stayed – in Oklahoma City, but it's the first, I think, of many. Uh, and I think that's a big takeaway here, too. I mean, you watch this team, and, and as well as Cleveland played, and they played really three consecutive great games. They were great in Game 3, they were great in Game 4, and they played really well for the most part in Game 5. They were great in those games, and they still couldn't beat uh, this Golden State team for more than, than, uh, than one game. This could be the beginning of something pretty special for Kevin Durant and these Warriors. I mean, these guys are most likely going to be together for a while. And and Durant, even if he's not going to get that championship with the team that he came up with, he could do something different, something more special by winning three, four, maybe five titles 
with this uh, Golden State team. Yeah, but Chris, still, is there are people that want to hang an asterisk on him or them because there seems to be this perception in some corners that Golden State somehow cheated to get this title. Remember, Curry was the seventh pick overall. Klay Thompson was the 11th pick overall. Draymond Green was the 35th pick overall. Then, because of the salary cap spike, they had a chance to sign an elite free agent in Kevin Durant. I mean, isn't that how any organization would dream of building a roster? Isn't that the way you do it? Yeah, I was actually just having this conversation with uh, Travis Schlenk, who's the new general manager in Atlanta, uh, was a former, was the assistant GM with the Warriors, but how that team was was built. And, you know, it's it's easy to say, well, you've got these stars, but what Golden State did was identify these stars. I mean, Steph Curry was the third point guard in that draft. Clay Thompson, I mean, the number of guys drafted before Clay Thompson that aren't even in the league right now uh, is, is stunning. I mean, Draymond Green, same type of thing. They just, they may have benefited from Kevin Durant's frustration at the end in Oklahoma City and the, the type of offense that Steve Kerr runs in Golden State, but they built this thing through smarts. Bob Myers and Larry Riley before him, they deserve a ton of credit for identifying these talented guys who are not necessarily blue chip, top of the draft players and, and getting them in there and getting them to buy into this system. They are not this, this you know, free spending super team. Like, uh, like another one might be, they've done this the right way. Chris Mannix joining us. And then you've got to make sure those pieces fit and guys have to accept their roles. For instance, Steph Curry did not have the best game forever, but overall he had a very good series, and yet he didn't get nearly the same level of attention that Kevin Durant received. What do you make of the way that Steph Curry has adjusted over the course of the season to playing along with Durant? It, 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 it fits into the mindset of, of everybody on this team, that, that winning – is is placed paramount over everything else. I mean, if there's a player that can help this team win, they are all in to get that player, regardless of the sacrifice needed to make to do it. And Steph was, you know, maybe not the one player who lost the most with Durant coming in, probably Draymond Green, uh, statistically anyway, stood to lose the most with, with Durant. But these guys don't care. All, you know, every time around them, Jim, all they want to talk about is, is how much fun it is to win. I mean, recently I had a a long conversation with Clay Thompson about you know the possibility that he might go out there and, and branch out when his contract's up and uh, play for his own team and be part of a super team. And the one thing he just kept repeating to me was, it's just too much fun to win. And I think that mindset permeates the entire locker room and is a reason that this team is going to have sustainable success over the next three or four years. Chris, finish that thought for a minute, because when you talked to Clay Thompson, you actually asked him, could you ever see yourself leaving to be the face of a different team? Exactly what was his response, and then what did you make of that? You know, he knew you know, the path I was walking down with him, you know, knowing that he is, I think, a franchise two-guard who could be you know, the, the alpha male on another team, his own franchise, have players built around him but he never really accepted the premise of it it was always it always came back with his responses to you know kind of looking around him pointing out his relationship with with some of these players and just how much fun it is to come back into that locker room after every game and 90 percent of the time knowing that you're going to win i mean every one of these guys wants to get paid and if this team is going to be, uh, be broken up it might be because joe lakeup and the ownership group doesn't want to pay 300 plus million dollars in salary and luxury tax penalties. But as long as the money's there, I can't see that ego's getting in the way of keeping this team together. I can't see a guy like Clay, who I, I hit him with it from a few different angles, just didn't have any interest in, in the idea of playing somewhere else 
uh, that, that might give him less of a chance to win championships. Chris Mannix joining us for a few more moments. So what's it mean to everybody else? For instance, if you're an NBA GM, and what are you thinking? I mean, are you thinking that maybe you rebuild, or do you hold off on making a big move and wait for the Warriors to break up or age out, or do you try to take that big swing and compete with them and go right at them? I think the mindset from the GMs I've talked to, Jim, is they're still going to go right at them, largely because in not a lot of situations does it make sense not to. Like, take the Houston Rockets, for example. I mean, they have a in-their-prime MVP-type player in James Harden. They're not going to waste Harden's prime years by not building a championship team around him. Same thing with San Antonio, which has Kawhi and LaMarcus Aldridge. A team that might take that approach might be the Toronto Raptors, who have a bunch of guys that are you know, in their uh, early to or late 20s, early 30s. They might not be willing to spend the type of money necessary to compete if they know what's waiting for them at the end of all this. But everybody I've talked to, their mindsets continue to kind of be aggressive. And most of these teams, Jim, are in different places. I mean, a team like Boston, you know, they're uh, the top seed in the East, an Eastern Conference finalist, but they're going to draft Markel Fultz. They're going to have some young players there that are going to develop. Most of these teams, they're going to keep being proactive in trying to build their roster with the understanding that it's probably going to be three or four years before anybody's going to be able to touch a title. So, Chris, what about OKC? What do you think the OKC brass and ownership is thinking watching the way that played out, That knowing that they had Kevin Durant and they had James Harden? What are they thinking as they see this whole thing? I'm sure it's frustrating. I haven't had a chance to talk to uh, people in the organization since the finals started, but I can only imagine the, the frustration they're feeling because you know there's a longstanding belief in Oklahoma City, Jim, that if there was a free agent shooter that was available and they were able to get that free agent shooter and use this example of, of Clay Thompson being a free agent. If Clay Thompson was available and he came to Oklahoma City, that Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant were able to convince Thompson to defect, that team would be the new super team. That team would be a 65-plus win team that would be a prohibitive favorite like Golden State to win the championship. So they're frustrated by the, by the circumstances of all this, but that's the type of organization that just keeps moving forward. They're keeping the eye on Russell Westbrook, making him happy, and just building that team from there. All right, so before you go, you are multitasking, Chris. Shifting gears, there have been rumblings of a potential deal for Mayweather-McGregor and a fight in August. You tweeted last night that there is no deal in place. Negotiations are still ongoing. What is the latest with that? Uh, well, they're still talking. And, you know, they're making progress on some deal points there's still a part on money, from what I'm told, which is the you know only thing that really matters uh, at the end of the day. But they're making some progress. You saw the reports that they reserved uh, uh, the MGM Grand for August 26th. That doesn't really mean anything. You know, uh, promotional companies reserve uh, arenas all the time. They're, they're allowed to bow out with virtually no penalty. They're just putting that uh, on the books for the potential for that fight. But there's no deal. It's not imminent in any stretch. They're still uh, dealing with this stuff. And and just to editorialize for a quick second, I mean, I just continue to believe that this is a terrible fight. I hope it never happens. If it does happen, I'm not going to it. I don't want to go and see a farce of an exhibition between the best boxer in the world and a guy that's never boxed before. Chris Mannix joining us. We answered a couple of questions. I was going to say, is it imminent? The answer is no. And then what kind of a fight do you think it would be? And your answer was, I'm not going. Well, man, what if you have to work? What if Yahoo says, oh, you're going all right. You're going to go and you're going to work and you're going to like it. If, if I'm assigned, I will go. If I'm tasked to go out there and go, I will go. But 
I have like most fights, even low level fights, Jim. I have I have a, a level of excitement for. I'm I'm giddy about it. even the fight coming up next weekend. Sergey Kovalev, Andre Ward. I'm very excited to see that fight. Even lesser fights in smaller markets. I've done sideline reporting for a bunch of boxing things. This is not a fight that excites me. I know the outcome of it, and I feel like it's going to turn out to be bad for boxing because a whole bunch of people are going to be fooled by the press conferences. They're going to pony up 100 bucks a pop, and they're going to walk away disappointed when it's a 12-round dismantling by Floyd Mayweather. So I, I, don't, I don't feel at all inclined to support something that I know is going to be a complete joke. Well, listen, the press conference is going to be better in the fight, that's for sure. When you talk about 12-round dismantling, I mean, is it going to be one of those clinics where Floyd is so good and so slick and so hard to hit and that it's so boring, or could he do some real damage for 12 rounds to Conor McGregor? Oh, I think he can do some damage. I think there's a real possibility it could be a stoppage of some kind, either from the corner uh, or the referee. I mean, people, and I had this conversation with some people last night who were all sort of asking me about it because there is a genuine mainstream interest uh, in this fight. But, you know, MMA to boxing, it's not like football to basketball, but it's certainly not the same sport by any stretch. I mean, you can't kick in boxing. You can't tackle somebody in boxing. You can't put guys in the types of moves that Conor McGregor has has thrived in in boxing. Mayweather is just going to allow McGregor to come at him. He's going to be elusive, and he's going to pot shot it. And by the end of the sixth or seventh round, I can envision this fight seeing a a completely bloodied uh, Conor McGregor whose corner says, that's enough. At at worst, it's that. At best, it's a 12-round whitewash of a decision by Mayweather. So last thought, I know why Mayweather wants that fight. That's easy money for a guy like that. Why do you think Conor McGregor wants that fight? I mean, because it's a lot of money? Or do you think somewhere deep down he really thinks he can win that fight? No, I, 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 mean, I, can't, I mean, I can't imagine him realistically thinking that he can win that fight. But it is going to be far more money than he'd ever get for another UFC fight. I mean, I've talked to people uh, around the UFC and, and even the people involved in the negotiations for this. And, and one of the things that I've gotten the sense of is that McGregor might see this as a checkout kind of fight. Like you make... You know, what, let's just say $50 million in a fight like this, he could be done. He could be the, it could be over for McGregor. He could say, that's the end of my career. I'm going to walk away. You just can't, even if he's not going to make as much money as Floyd Mayweather, you can't, you know, eat, turn down or run away from this type of career high payday. I mean, listen, you know how many wars he would have to have in the octagon to equal the yep. payday that he'd get for that? So then a final thought, if he's their biggest chip and he's UFC's biggest asset and he has no chance to win that fight, why would they let him? They they don't want to have this fight happen, Jim. And I've said this on your show before, and, and I've written it, that UFC is an obstacle in all this. But at some point, if McGregor wants this fight, if there's a deal to be made, and if it's made at a higher level than, say, Dana White, if they go over his head to make that deal, which I've been reading some stuff uh, about, then ultimately uh, it's going to get made. And, and, and look, UFC will make some money off it, and they'll lose a guy potentially if he gets blown out. Maybe his brand uh, takes a hit, but they'll, they'll cash a check. I don't have much sympathy for UFC. I do have, have, have sympathy for the people that are fooled, for the people that throw $100 down at this fight and then expect something that just doesn't come out of it. Let's go to Boston. Mark in Boston. Mark, brother, what's up? How are you? Hi, Jim. I'm Hi. calling to RSVP for the smack off. I think it's always a smart play to get your pre-fight weigh-in out of the way as soon as possible. Step on the scale, flex for the crowd a little bit. But after this, I'm heading to Siberia, trudging through the snow with a tree trunk on my back, hearts on fire playing in the background, grow out the beard and get ready to take on Lef, the Drago of the jungle. That is, if, you know, Drago waxed his own body, had a beak only Toucan Sam could appreciate, and distracted everyone from his weak takes with rabbit-in-the-hat-level gimmicks. 
You see, us East Coasters, we don't need that sleight of hand, fireworks in the sky. These aren't the droids you're looking for, garbage. I'm not sliding into the DMs of some Sports Illustrated writer right now asking him to enhance my call. I'm not helping a has-been MMA fighter rub the cream and clear on his chest before working on some overproduced resurrection smack. No, I'm here for that green, Jim, and I intend to do it the old-fashioned way. That wider slap you in the face and throw you out the club level smack. July 28th is a long time to wait, but I guarantee you this. The regime change is coming. And for all, I got a message for all those overproduced, gimmick-ridden scumbags. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Mark in Boston. My man, I will see you on the 28th. Scooter Jeanette joining us. I know you're not looking to celebrate too much since the team did not get the result that you would have liked, but what kind of a zone are you in right now at the plate, and how does it feel going to the ballpark? I'm feeling good, man. I'm feeling real good. Uh, the biggest thing is, is I'm just trying to relax, you know. Uh, early in the season, uh, for the most part, when I was when I was struggling, I was I was just kind of tight, you know, tense up there, trying to do too much. And uh, lately, I've just been trying to relax and and you know, kind of loosen up the hands, and they're just they're just able to work a lot better now. Uh, done a lot of work in the cage with with our uh, our hitting coach Don Long and our assistant hitting coach Tony Armiro That that you know really um, was two days before I hit the four home run. So a lot of credit goes to those boys for helping me out there. Scooter, I haven't thought about the phrase in a little while, but that notion of try easier it's one of the hardest things ever, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, you know, it's almost like the whole less is more thing. Right. <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it's hard to, for your brain to connect the two, um, especially when when you get frustrated and, you know, let's say you, you go for four the next day, you're like, oh, man, screw it, I'm just going to try to hit a homer, and then, boom, you go for four again. So um, I think we all know, or, or a lot of us know, that um, that's the way to go. It's just, it's a game of failure, man, so it's hard to, to block out those frustrations and just stick with what works. Scooter Jeanette joining us. So it's been about a week since that amazing performance against the Cards where you went five for five. You had the four home runs. You had 10 runs batted in, a stat line that nobody's ever had in Major League history. I mean, Scooter, when you go to the park on a day like that, do you have any sense that something crazy like that was going to happen? I mean, what did it feel like on your way to the park that day? No, not at all, James. And, and, and to be real honest, I had no idea that I was even going to play that day. So, Great. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. Uh but no man, it was it was uh it was kinda weird, you know, but after the game, um I really felt like it was just a normal game. I was talking to some of my teammates, one of my buddies Zach after the game and I was just like, dude, it's it's like a normal game. Like I like I it's just a normal game after and and I think that's how we, we wire ourselves as baseball players because like I said before, man, it's a game of failure, so it's it's just almost like we wire ourselves to to stay even, you know. Whether you have a good game or a bad game, just you know, stay even because um, it's a long year. And and well, I, I saw a few days later, like a couple of days ago, I was just like, man, like I can't believe I hit four home runs. You know, it's kind of starting to hit me a little bit more each day, but. Um, but yeah, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. Scooter Jeanette joining us. Not only that, but it's not like you did it against some anonymous pitcher either. You got things started off against Adam Wainwright with an RBI single in the first and then a grand slam in the third. What kind of pitch did you see on the grand slam? And then what did you think when it went out? Uh, it was a cutter. It was a cutter uh, middle end. Um, it was probably a pitch that I wouldn't be able to handle as well. Uh, 
you know, prior to making that adjustment with my hands and stuff. Um, but I mean, obviously, he's a great pitcher, and and you know, it, it's it's weird because uh, didn't hit a home run for I want to say like eighty or ninety at bats. So just to get one out was like, oh man, finally, you know, I'm back. And, and then the second one, and the third one, and then you know, the fourth one just popped off was was nuts. But uh, but yeah, I believe it was a cutter. I mean, dude, for instance, if that's how you felt after hitting the first one and then you chased out with a two-run shot in the fourth and then a, so- a solo shot in the sixth and that makes three straight and then you come up in the eighth inning and you cap things off with that two-run home run, I mean, what's it like when you're rounding the bases after the fourth bomb? Are you pumped up or are you thinking this whole thing is just crazy? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit of both. I remember laughing to myself. <laughs> I was just like, wow, like, I can't believe a guy like me did this, you know, and um, I just kind of had that feeling of, of like, I looked at Johnny Peralta round third and his face was just like, you know, like, like kind of like stunned. And, and I was just like, I don't know, Poppy, like, <laughs> I don't know. And uh, I don't know, man, I'm just, I'm extremely blessed you know, for something like that to, um, you know, happen to me, a guy that's, that's not a, a power hitter uh, per se. Um, it's just amazing. You know, it was just a, incredible night and i just remember laughing to myself <laughs> running around the bases it's it is funny in that sense but i mean what do you do with that scooter when you have a game like that i mean do you try to lock in and analyze it and try to repeat it or is it best just not to think about it at all and just go with it yeah no it uh not really analyzing it just just kind of you know realizing that hey that's in there you know that that you know I can I can do that. Um, obviously, I'm not setting any expectations to to do that again, or you know, kind of set the bar as a standard for me every night. But um, I'm sure that uh, you know if I'm struggling, which again it's a game of failure, it'll happen again. I might go back to those you know those abs and look and maybe see what I was doing or or, or whatnot. But um, but yeah, not. Not a whole lot of analyzing and, and you know, trying to, to perfect anything, just kind of realizing what I did and that it's that it's in there, that I'm capable of doing some pretty cool things and just let it happen. Really cool things. Scooter Jeanette joining us for another moment or so. Look, you were the 496th pick in the draft by the Brewers. You worked your way up to the majors with them, but then in spring training they release you and you end up signing with the Reds, which is the team that you grew up rooting for. So what's it mean to be a Red right now and then to have a moment like that in a Reds uniform? Oh, it's unreal, Jim. It's uh, it's a dream come true. Uh, I told uh, I told somebody this the other day. I don't know if you, you I'm sure you've seen the movie Liar Liar with uh, Jim Carrey sure. when when a little kid blows out the candles and then you know it ends up happening. Uh, I remember countless times as a kid blowing out blowing out birthday birthday cake and uh, you know wishing that I would play for the Cincinnati Reds one day. So it was pretty cool how it how it ended up happening. Um, but to be the the first player to to do it as a as a red, and like you said, being being a huge red fan pretty much all my life, and when I got drafted by the Brewers, I kind of had to keep that under wraps. Um, but now I'm able to say that I've always been a red fan. And uh, when we played him, I I would always try to beat him, obviously. But um, you know, to be the only player to do it as as a red, oh, man, it's kind of lost the words for that one. Uh, just again, man, I'm extremely blessed, and uh, you know, to have the opportunity to play 
in Cincinnati, uh, in front of family and friends is, is just amazing. Um, you know, to be able to do that, uh, the four homers at home against a, a team in our division, get the win. Uh, I had, uh, a few family there. Um, they were actually out in left field. I didn't even know that they're at the game till, uh, like the ninth inning. Um, so man, it was it was amazing. Uh, it was it was just an incredible night. Scooter, there's another, something I'm never going to forget. I was going to say, excuse me. There's another great story that back in the day when you were nine, you gave your teacher Mrs. Snyder a signed baseball as a gift, and on that ball you wrote, "Keep it. It will be famous someday." She kept that ball, and when you were called up to the majors with the Brewers and came through Cincinnati, she went to a game and she brought the ball with her. What do you remember about that day? Oh, it was awesome. I, I hadn't seen her for man, like 15 years. So at first I, I was kind of, I looked over and, and uh, she was yelling my name and stuff. And I was kind of like, man, like, I know this, I know this woman. Like I was drawn a little bit to her and I kind of started walking over and, and she smiled and, and, uh, she showed me the ball. And as soon as I saw the ball, I, re- I remembered and I was like, it's Snyder. And I gave her a big hug and, um, she had another ball there for, for me to sign to get an updated uh, version of the autograph because the one when I was nine um, wasn't very legible or good. So Correct. I give it a legit autograph. But yeah, I see her uh, from time to time at the games, and it's just it's just amazing. You know, when you're when you're little, and they you know the popular question is uh, you know what do you want to be when you grow up? I was always like a major league baseball player. I want to play for the Reds, and you know, kids would laugh, or uh, you know the teacher would be like, well, you know that's probably not going to happen you know and, <laughs> and all this she never said that but um you know to to actually be able to do it is is amazing and uh and she gets a kick out of it of course yeah or, or it will happen you'll hit four home runs and as long as we're talking about great stories one last thing before you go there's also the one about how you got that nickname scooter which involved the trip to the police station what happened oh man yeah uh I was just a real uh, defiant kid. Um, I think karma is going to bite me on that one, and <laughs> I'm probably going to have a crazy kid. But uh, uh, I was in the car one day, and, and I, for some reason, I didn't like wearing my seatbelt. Um, I was probably four or five, so I graduated from the from the car seat, and I was in the back seat on my own. And uh, my thing was, whenever my mom would start driving, I would be like, "Hey, mom," and would go click and. She would get upset. She'd have to pull the car over and put my seatbelt back on. And I think that day I was just in that mood, and I did it a few times. Uh, I want to say like four or five times. She said, and she got uh, she got real upset and turned into the police station. And uh, I think it was just uh, kind of like she hit her boiling point there and uh, wanted to scare me into wearing my seatbelt and listening to her more often than. <laughs> Um, we go in and, and all I remember from that day is, is just a badge and being really intimidated. And, uh, when the police officer asked me what my name was, I made up Scooter Jeanette because that was my, that was my favorite character on the Muppet Babies was Scooter. And, um, my mom had no idea about it all. And, uh, from her reaction, he, he realized that probably wasn't my real name. So he's like, what's your real name, buddy? And I said, Scooter. And, I think I felt as though I would get arrested if I told him my real name. So, Incredible. <laughs> which is crazy, but for about a year, year and a half, I didn't answer to Ryan at all. So my teachers, my family, they all had to call me Scooter. Let's go to H-Town. 
Let's start with a lady clone, Nikki in Houston. Nikki, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Life is so good, Romy. How are you? Yeah, what a great answer. Same. I am great and life is good. In fact, life's great, Nikki. Yes, it is. Well, you know, I'm a teacher and I thought school was out for the summer, but it looks like I've got one more lesson to give because I refuse to embrace the suck that is some new-gen callers. So fake silk junior and hook tryhard, put your listening ears on, bro bras, because this is for you. If you absolutely cannot help yourself and need to call at Jim, first ask, do you want Twitter to treat you like the warriors treated the calves? Hashtag pulverized. Hashtag not too sharp. Your calls aren't original or quick-witted. You sound like a bunch of ninnies. This is the jungle, and if you can't bring the lumber, shut your soup cooler. Stop trying to flex your smack muscles before you pop a roid. And no, please, don't get any ideas. There is no HGH to help you there. Your jungle grade, triple U. Josh, you need to stay after and write, I will not make hook references 100 times. Class dismissed. War lady clones. War lady clones. War All right, lady Nikki, clones. not bad. Not bad. Go ahead and rack that lady clone, Alvy, just because. Hashtag pulverized. Not there yet, but close. We'll find out if this is the call that puts him in. Zach, bro, what's up? Yo, Romy. I'm just making my call live from space today. Yeah, I said it, clones. And if you Radio Shack conspiracy theorists, clones don't believe me, listen to this. That's the sound of my space shuttle wasting all of your tax dollars. That last caller who called in was awesome. She almost sounded like an infomercial. infomercial. And if there's one thing I learned in astronaut school is that haters are going to hate and ainers are going to ain't. So all you clone haters and ainers who gave a thumbs down on my golden ticket can take those same stubby thumbs and flip them straight up your tailpipes because whether you like it or not, your boy can hit the board, and he can come a tomahawk dunking the smack off if given the chance. So scope about that, losers, over and out. <laughs> Zach and SLC, right there on the line again. Hey, look, I think at this point, this is who this guy is. This is what he does. He's not going to come with something else that's going to like blow everybody away. Although he did make that call from the space shuttle, so give him that. Let's go to Pensacola. Casey in Pensacola. KC, nice to have you on. What's up? Oh, what's going on, Rome? Hey, it was uh, I can't remember that guy's name in Salt Lake City. Zach. Uh, Zag or Zach or Daryl or whatever his name is. But the only spaceship he was calling from was the Challenger because his phone call exploded about thirty. Ah! That's not a good call. No, you don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Casey, you didn't really go there, did you? Casey, that's not what you just did, right? That's not why you called. You didn't call to talk junk about the Challenger exploding. Bam. It's done. Just like that. Thank you very much for checking it out. Subscribe. Tell somebody about it. Leave a review. Trust the podcast. And then check back tomorrow for more Daily Jungle.